This is the Black and Gold Banneret Podcast. Now, here are your hosts, Jeff Sharon and Eric Lopez. And we welcome you to this edition of the Black and Gold Banneret Podcast. I'm Eric Lopez. Jeff is off. He is on vacation. Boy, he picked a bad week to be off. Because we got a busy show coming up. Breaking news on Wednesday night. UCF and Florida playing on the field. We'll explain that. Later in the show, we'll break down three UCF baseball players getting drafted in the Major League Baseball Draft. Bryson Turner will join us for that. Plus, we'll take your questions on Twitter as well, including uh, there's a catcher in softball that's moving on. So we'll discuss all that. Of course, you can follow us at blackandgoldbanneret.com on the website, UCF underscore banneret on Twitter. Follow us, like us on Facebook. Subscribe to us on our YouTube page as well at Black and Go Banneret. I'm joined by Andrew Glukoff for this opening segment of the show because of this big breaking news, Drew. And that's, of course, according to Mike Bianchi of the Orlando Sentinel on late Wednesday night is reporting that UCF and Florida are on the verge of an agreement for a three-game series in football starting in 2024 in Gainesville, then 2030 at UCF on campus at the Bounce House, and then 2033 at Gainesville. It's a two-for-one. Technically, of course, there's so many questions from a financial standpoint we don't know, from a ticket distribution uh, and things like that. Uh, your reaction, Drew, obviously this has been a hot topic since this came out on Wednesday night. A lot of mixed bag of a reaction. Obviously, you have the detractors that are against the quote-unquote two-for-one. Son are complaining about the length of how long the games are dragged out and things like that. What was your reaction when you saw this news? It's about time. <laughs> <laughs> it's about time. Let's, let's, let's take a step back for a second. Uh, when, when Danny White came out, and said we're not taking two for ones uh, basically you created a picket line and no one was crossing and so you know terry mohajer comes in and flat out said the schedule's a mess it's an absolute mess most schools are looking into the next decade ucf is looking you know next year to try to fill uh that's a football disaster. I don't think I don't think people realize how bad UCF's schedule situation really is. They com- there's a lot of complaints about the scheduling being the way it is, and it's because uh, there's no choice. If you go really to any, you know, many of the big schools, they're already scheduling into the 2030s because they don't have room. They're 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 wheeling and dealing. Uh, UCF had an opportunity a couple years ago. To, to put a series together, never really got anywhere, but they had an opportunity to do it. They chose not to. It wasn't, uh, it wasn't the direction that the administration wanted to go. Had they done it, they would have probably got more favorable uh, times compared to what they have today. But, you, you know, Terry Mohajer flat out said, you know, you're going to like some of them. You're not going to like some of them. But I, I think this is huge for UCF. Uh, Florida has crossed the line. And, has, and this creates uh, a lot of positive uh, energy as far as UCF come out and saying, hey, we're willing to, to make an, a deal to, to play. Let's play. I, I think this is great for UCF. I agree. Uh, look, here's the bottom line. You mentioned it, and you wrote about this on Black and Go Benaret. There's a lot of holes on this schedule. 
And you oh, still it's have terrible. And you got to well, go ahead, go break it down for let's, us. Let's, for let's the break it down. So, so obviously UCF's 21 and 22 schedules are complete. The 2022 schedule was recently completed with the addition of a home and home with Florida Atlantic away in 2022, home in 2025. UCF has two slots in 2023, 2024, and 2025. They have no games scheduled for 2026, and they have three spots for 2027. That's it. That's all they have on their schedule. Let's compare to Florida. Florida's schedule is full in 21, 22, 23, 25, 26, and 31. There's one slot available in 2024. That's when that first game against UCF is due to be scheduled. They have Two spots open in 2027, one in 2028, but they already have two road games, so uh, they're getting a home game that one. Two in 29, two in 30, one in 32, and then they have nothing else but Florida State scheduled from 2033 and on. So uh, comparatively speaking, UCF's schedule is, is you know in horrible shape compared to Florida's, which are basically outside of one game that UCF's filling in is full until 2027. I mean, you know, that I, you know, when Terry Mohajer commented about the scheduling, he said when he was at Arkansas state, they were looking at towards 2030 and UCF was looking at 2022. It just shows the state of the program when it comes from a scheduling standpoint, that is a direct result of scheduling philosophy that was on the previous administration it was a gamble. It didn't work. It's time to change tactics. And you know what? By showing that UCS wouldn't have played ball, uh, there is a better chance of actually landing home and homes because now a team has crossed the picket line. They don't have to be the first anymore. Florida's, if this goes through, Florida's that first team, the, the monkeys off the, you know, off the back, and we can move forward and we can actually, you know, be proactive and build these schedules as opposed to being in constant damage control. You know, some people are happy being perpetual series with Florida Atlantic. Uh, I see a problem with that. Here's the truth. Recruits also care about the schedule. If you have nothing but patsies on your schedule, you have a less chance of landing a recruit in a vacuum versus you know, a school down the road that's like, hey, we're playing, you know, X elite team and, you know, next year or in two years, you know, come here and get a shot at. And, and the other thing is, you know, the, we're, we're so locked in on the on the CFP. If you want to be the best, beat the best. What's the problem with playing against a good program in the regular season, beating them, and then parlaying that into the CFP? Because the other thing is, the rankings are still going to be done by the CFP committee. If insert Sunbelt conference name here goes undefeated with an elite win and UCF goes undefeated in the American with trash wins, uh, you're, you may have a rankings problem. It's not a guarantee that UCF is going to be the team, even if they lose a game somewhere, you know, and well, that's the, the thing you want to give yourself as many opportunities to get into the playoff you don't, you know, if you play a tough schedule, you win those games. That's going to be a chip on your shoulder, uh, uh, in your in your favor. I've been a proponent of saying that had Houston taken care of business in conference, 
in 2016. They would have been in the playoff over Washington because they would have had a win over Oklahoma, who won the Big 12 that year, and Louisville. That matters. I do think that would help your resume. But you make a great you make a great point. More important than that, the recruiting aspect of it. Every kid wants to play in big games. And I'm sorry, but playing UConn is not a big game. Playing Bethune-Cookman, not a big game. FAU, not a big game. You're playing, you got to play a marquee game every year. And you just illustrated, they're going to have a hard time trying to get a marquee home game here in the next five, six years. That's going to be tough. And you're probably going to have to go on the road for a marquee game. It, that hurts recruiting. You want your recruits to know that, hey, if I come to UCF, I get to play the best. I get to play Florida. I get to play anybody. We're, we'll play, we'll have a legitimate chance to compete for the national title and not try to talk our way into one. Exactly. You Again, you want to be the best, beat the best. You know, we're competing uh, against other you know, other, uh, you know, podcasts and other, you know, media things. So we try to do something special, something good. And, you know, we want to be the best, no different than on the field. You know, you, you have to, you do something unique, something special. Yeah. You know, UCF has an outstanding statement, a great atmosphere, but if you're playing against, you know, UConn or Florida Atlantic or Liberty, that that doesn't create national excitement it really doesn't and, and you want to also tip the scale in your in-state recruiting you know playing florida is a big deal especially if you win you know those in-state recruits want to see that they want to be on the field for that and, and to be able to start getting in-state series in place is it, just huge i mean and there's uh, no pr- there's nothing to lose there's All the pressure's to... on Florida. That's yes. what's so hilarious yes. about this. Yes, yes, yes. The pressure is on Florida because if Florida wins, they were supposed to win. UCF is still, you know, the G5, the, uh, the, the other guy, the underdog. However, if UCF wins, it, start, it, it causes disruption. You know, Knights, Knight fans love the concept of UCF being a disruptor. The best way to disrupt is to win on the field. So get on the field and go win. And the only way to do that is to play ball with them. And you have to negotiate. You, you, there's give, there's take. And right now UCF is not negotiating from a position of strength. The, their future schedule is so bad. Uh, you know, they made the comment about the parking lot, you know, playing in the parking lot. Well, you know, it's, it, it's going to have to be their parking lot more often than not right now until UCF can balance their schedule out in the future. Here's the thing. UCF has to budget for six home games. That That's how it normally works unless you're one of the top teams. So the fact that Danny White wanted to budget on seven was absolutely insane and unsustainable. It was unsustainable and was not going to work. Here's the thing. You can make it work. You have a, an FCS opponent on years that you deal with the extra game from a from a two and one and you can have home and home series against uh lower p5s and in other g5 schools uh, you can make six games work hey everyone else does it you know why can't ucf well right. ucf is no different than than any other school out there uh you know there's no reason why they can't put together a six game schedule uh, the big difference is they, unfortunately, 
we have a pecking order in, in, in the FBS. And until it changes, it's a case of kind of... It's the way it works. It's the way it works. Either oh, is anybody regret or you don't. Anybody, anybody regret, like, taking the one game at Alabama in 2000? I mean, they won that game. That's one hey. of the mark. I mean... There was a one game in 2012 against Ohio State, which was replacing another one game against Pitt that got right. that got nixed. Uh, there was, and by the way, Ohio State actually canceled Cincinnati on that one. Uh, 2016 against Michigan, it was a one-off. You know, sometimes one-offs are not necessarily a bad thing. Uh, it, it can, you know, it it helps balance the schedule. Sometimes. And it gets casual fans interested. Like I think a lot of people that are upset and think that. Those might be the diehards, and that's fine. But you're 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 already in. Like you, you're you're not. We're not trying to get you to buy in. You got to get casual. I've had people text me that don't really care about UCF football. They're excited about this matchup as a casual person. And I think we forget that as sports fans here, Drew. When a part of scheduling these games is you draw casual people. You're gonna get new fans because you're playing in these games because there's eyeballs. I've said this story and I said this earlier with Bryson when we did the Q and A. I became a UCF fan because I, rec- I I heard of Dante Culpepper. You know how I heard about Dante Culpepper? Because they were playing the Nebraska and leading them at the half. It wasn't because they were playing Idaho State at home at the Citrus Bowl. Like you know what I mean? Like that matters. And I think it helps you grow. And you you want to play the best teams. Why are you ducking? Like why you know, all this yap yap that you're this great? What are you afraid of? Uh, and, and I think that comes to the fact that they bought so much so much into a philosophy that you know I understand where they're coming from. They they want equality in the FBS. Well, guess what? There has never been, and there probably never really will be. A level of equality because this isn't a league like the NFL that has a governing structure that that controls everything. These are actually ten independently run conferences. Correct. That have banded together to create a system called the CFP to determine who's the best team among them. But they are still independently run conferences. They all have different rules, and they allow each school to independently schedule three or four games on their own against other schools from independently run conferences. If you don't like it, don't be a college fan. This is how it works on every level in work. every sport. And, every me, sport. and here's the other aspect of it. If you want to make the college football playoff, if you believe it expands to 12, 8, 12, whatever, you got to test yourself. You're not going to prove yourself anything by playing Bethunes and Tulsa's and Connecticut's and, who did you beat? You know, if you play Florida, that's going to help you one way or the other. It helps you get prepared. It helps your resume. It helps grab interest. Uh, yeah, and if you lose, that's a tough break and you lose. And I know some people are saying, well, that's going to kick you out of the playoff because they'll pick, you know, you're, you'll lose to the team that's undefeated in the G5. And that's been one thing I've said, Drew. I hope that the committee, when they do expand the playoff, reward teams that play a tough schedule and don't just reward a team that goes undefeated. Well, that's always, what they've done in the past. Right. Well, some, some would think no, but I agree with, I think for the most part, they've done that where you reward a team. For example, Cincinnati got in over a Coastal Carolina. Why? Because they played a tougher league and they got the benefit of the doubt, tougher schedule, winning at UCF at the end, beating Tulsa in the championship game that was ranked. That won them over, kept them in the top 10 uh, in that regard. It doesn't hurt you. 
I personally think the game, the days of games against the FCS are coming to an end because I think it'll be interesting to me if the committee starts punishing teams that play FCS games as part of the schedule. I don't know if they will, but I think those are some of the questions if they expand. I'm talking about if they expand down the road. And I think that's important to bring up, Drew, because I think a lot of the scheduling motivation you're seeing here by a lot of teams is, oh, crap, we better make sure we got our schedule in ducks in order by the time this playoff expands. Oh, absolutely. And you're, and you're actually, if you look at Florida's schedule, you're, you're seeing little bits and pieces of it actually start to swing that way. Cause you know, we've always talked about, or what we, you know, it's always been talked about how the SEC has their November tune-up game against an FCS opponent. Well, they have that in 2021. Well, it starts dialing back after that yep. in 2022, it's in October. Uh, in 2025, it's in October. In 26, 23, and 22, or in uh, 23, 24, and 26, they're in September. And right now, they have no other FCS games on there. Now, they may ultimately put one on there, but you're starting to see a, a, a trend of them moving away from the late season because it's creating a negative perception versus you know, trying to absolutely uh, elevate themselves. Cause you know, it's getting to the point where, you know, you have a, a one or two loss sec team versus, you know, a one loss big 10 team. And they're jockeying for position of that five through eight, you know, spot. Agreed. Uh, you know, it's something's, something's got to give, you know, you know, I agree. so, you know, they always said, in, in football, if you're going to lose, lose early because you have the rest yep. of the season to make up for it. Well, if you're going to play bad teams, play them early because then you have the rest of the season to make up for it. Now, let me ask you this from an economic standpoint, because obviously some of the focus is, well, what happens if Florida, you know, buys them out? And with that 2030 game, they never come here. They're going to, they're going to die. My response to that is cool. That means UCF gets a check out of that. Am I, am I, I mean, I mean, I'm being, I mean, there is a financial either way. UCF is going to be protected here financially. Either they're going to play the Florida games and you're going to have a packed house. You're going to make a lot of money or they buy you out and you're not going to make money because they buy you out. There's going to be clauses. I would assume in this contract. The other thing I wonder. Well, they're going to buy out of two games at that point because they're not going to buy out of the 2030 game and keep the 2030. So you're going to make good money. You're going to make good money out of that. So Uh, I don't see Florida doing it. Plus, uh, I agree. P- I agree. I don't think they will. The PR hit would be catastrophic because uh, then you actually have a tangible ammo, you know, tangible story of Florida is afraid to play UCF Correct. in their house. They bought out of the game. And I will say, I think Scott Strickland is more willing to play people to his credit. He's opened up. They're playing more non-conference. I think there's a business side of this for, well, Flor- for Florida, I think they know they can't draw 100,000 people if they're playing Eastern Washingtons of the world, right? Like, they got to play somebody that fans get excited. I think the days of, hey, I'm going to go see my team play the garbage team because I'm this, are over. I don't think people are just going to, you know, dive in, especially in this post, you know, oh, heck, we're still in a pandemic uh, deal. I'm, at, I'm curious from your standpoint, do you think there's a part of UCF that that home game in 2033, they're kind of hoping that by then their football stadium is a little bit more expanded. Could you could you buy into that conspiracy theory that maybe, you know, and part of it is, hey, you had no choices, but could UCF be thinking, there's always been some chatter, quiet chatter 
about expanding the stadium, more seats. Could that be in play for that 2033 game, let's say? Well, I mean, it would be 2030. Uh, 2033. You think they could do something sooner than that? Okay, so you're well, being more optimistic. 2033, okay. the game would be in Gainesville, so it wouldn't matter. Okay, you're right, 2030, uh, right, right. Uh, so, you know, let's let's talk about that 2030 game. Yeah. Uh, you know, from a construction standpoint, absolutely. From a money standpoint, they, there's a lot of work that needs to be done. UCF was very lucky to end up in the black this year. It took the buyouts of Josh Heupel and Danny White to do so. UCF was was facing a loss for the year, and they would have had a loss if nothing changed. Uh, the the fact that they ended up in the black in in this pandemic year was just absolutely amazing. You know, thank your lucky stars because many schools have not been so fortunate. Uh, to expand the stadium is going to be expensive. UCF has a lot of maintenance they have to do on what's currently there. It's been around since 2007, and it's taken a lot of abuse. There's been lawsuits about the quality of the steel that was used, and and UCF's had to put money in to make sure it stays up uh, and stays safe. So uh, do I think by 2030 there could be an expansion? Yeah, I do, but you're going to need to maintain a high-level of demand and buzz to be able to justify it and this is how you do it you put games like this on the schedule and again a lot of fans are complaining about how late this game is well that's because that's what's available so you know as terry mohajer said you're gonna find series you don't like and we're gonna find series that ucf has to work from a, a position of weakness to to get things done to catch back up to the national average. I agree. And I appreciate you correcting me. I was, for whatever, I was getting it confused, right? The home game's at 2030. The game in Gainesville is 2033. I agree with you. I don't see Florida buying out of two games. Uh, I don't see Florida buying out of one. Uh, There's no benefit. Right, right, right. There isn't. And I think they're willing to play. And I think they want to hit up all the markets. So I think it's a win. And again, attendance, I think attendance is a factor here. I think we're taking it for granted in this post-COVID deal. They want to make sure they get people back in the stadium. They want to make sure they get packed houses. That Florida stadium is what? Nearly 100,000 or 90 plus thousand. They're not going to draw that for garbage. I think they realize that. They're not drawing that for, you know, Bethune and or whatever. They want to attract games. And UCF will draw. UCF will bring their fans. And it's uh, fun. And, you know, they're, they're Oh, what a crazy concept. Factor. They're looking for the fun factor, too. But why have fun? Let's just go beat up on UConn and then brag that we're number one. And and Florida has made a concerted effort to play state schools. They they host Florida Atlantic this year. They travel to South Florida, and then they play home versus USF two other games. That's why I have full faith that Florida would see the contract through. They're playing at USF in the first game of the series. And that's partially because it works out with uh, it being the only road game of their schedule and they can keep that seven game home schedule. Uh, you know, we, we want to, you know, we've always talked about wanting to see, uh, you know, more regional games. They're cheaper that, you know, it's good for the, for the, local economy it's good for the school's economy uh, this is no different you know florida atlantic usf miami uh they they play florida a and you know they have you know uh, sanford which is and mcneese state you know they're they're southeastern schools you know they're you know coming well to play i, I think like once this becomes if this comes out and it's announced 
I mean, this will open floodgates, right? Like all of a sudden now there's pressure on Florida State's like, why aren't you doing that with UCF? You know, if you're Miami, why aren't you doing that with UCF? And I think it opens up a lot of doors that right now, right now are closed. And again, it's easy to say, well, that's not fair. We should hold on to our formula. Who are you playing right now? Who are you going to play for the next five years that's going to wor- be worth a darn? Like, it's nobody. You're going to be dusting off. And this idea that, oh, we're going to wait until somebody drops a game and things like that, that's insane. I'm sorry. Danny White was a great AD, did a lot of great things, but he dropped the ball on this, clearly. He's put UCF in a bad position from a scheduling standpoint in the number one sport where you make revenue. It's it's true. I, he made a gamble. I what what are you gonna do? Uh, you you try some. It didn't. He work. let his emotions get the best of him. This goes back to 2017. He got the emotions the best of him. No, this is not right. We should be in the playoff. Oh, we're not gonna uh, just cave into two for one. We're gonna do home and homes. And you know what? Everybody else in the sport told him, "Okay, good luck." Yeah, they basically uh, laughed at him. Yeah, and and he got blacklisted. Well, let me phrase that. UCF got blacklisted. I mean, uh, some true. would argue by him going to Tennessee is like being blacklisted, but that's all the story. Well, I'm that, that's a, that, yeah, that's not a true. <laughs> but I'm, but it's true. He, he damaged the school's ability to schedule games because he 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 dug his heels in so much. No one wanted to be that first team that that really you know that first elite team to to jump over. I mean, Miami talked about you know doing a, a, you know, a two for one originally was a home and home. And then uh, I, I believe Florida Citrus sports kind of got in their ear and it kind of right. went sideways. Uh, but, you know, the, the, the truth is, you know, Miami may not be the great program it once was, but it still has uh, you know, a historical cachet that a UCF doesn't have, and they're still able to get, you know, two for ones with, or, or even just, uh, you know, one-shot games against smaller schools. Uh, you look at Florida State's future schedule, and you go from 2025 and on, there's at least two spots available. Well, 2026, there's only one spot, but 2025 on with, with 26 being an exception, there's at least two spots available. The next four seasons, 21 through 24, are all taken up. They're all full. So, mm-hmm. I mean, UCF can 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 work to schedule these, but you know, 2023, 2024, that's that's a rough situation. Most schools don't have spaces available. I mean, Miami does. Maybe, maybe Miami would, would agree to something to, to help each other out. You know, they can they can schedule an FCS school and, and balance things out, but you know, they also could throw a bone and and work with UCF. You know, who knows? It's a tough job. And again, it, you want to play marquee games. You want to be, look, I, I, I will ask you this question. Uh, uh, one of our listeners asked, and we, me and Bryson asked, answered this question later in the show, but which games are you looking forward to the most this year? What pops into your head, Drew? What games in this year's schedule pops into your, that you're the most looking forward to? Uh, is this home, road, or all, all the of above? All of it, all the above, all of it, whatever, uh, yeah. Boise State. Yep, Mar- marquee. Yep. What are, what that, what? That's two marquee games, right? Major mm-hmm. programs. One on the road, the other one at home. Part of a home and home. Okay, they're both part of home and homes. Yeah, uh, right. But Boise marquee State, game. Boise State twenty one and twenty three. Yeah, Louisville twenty one and twenty two. Big brand, uh, a brand's names there. Louisville, the ACC program. Obviously, that will be the eight years to the eight years ago. UCF played Louisville in that classic game in Louisville. Boise's obviously. 
the G5 program that people have compared to over the last two decades. Uh, right. And the other two two games are Memphis and conference games. Correct. Conference games. And Cincinnati. Conference most games. Important. But you notice you didn't bring up Bethune. You didn't bring up UConn. You know what I mean? Like, <laughs> you're no different than on every fan. Like, we always look forward to the marquee. Last year, if we did this exercise last year, what was the game that people were talking about a year ago this time? It was North Carolina at the time they were the schedule for the opener and Georgia Tech. That's the games they were looking at. What? Are, hello? What am I missing here? That's the games people look forward to. I'm sorry. That's reality. And you have to give your fans, and I think you have to give your players that you're recruiting and the players you currently have those type of games. Otherwise, they're not going to come to your school. They're not going to commit to your school. And the recruiting drops off, and fans will stop coming to games because you can't go undefeated forever. And once you lose a game or two, people are going to be, why do I want to go see them play Bethune when I can watch that at home? Why do I bother with that? You find me someone who's excited about UCF versus Liberty, and I'll find you a liar. Because there's nothing exciting about that game. Correct. Nobody cares. Um, This is going to bring television into it. The national media will be more interested in it. It's a brand name. Look, I'm the softball play-by-play guy, Drew. What was the game this past year that people have talked about the most this year in softball? It's the Florida game. Yeah. Joel. Games. Why? Why was that? Because it's a big brand. It's Florida. It's a top five team. And they won. (laughs) And and, and the reason why that's important, because you don't have to be a softball fan to be into that, right? Like people that are not softball fans were into that because it's Florida, it's UCF. It just does. I think that's missing from baseball. It's not their fault. It's not Greg's fault. I blame Florida for this because he's willing to play everybody. But Florida's not on the UCF schedule because Florida doesn't want to play them. And I, that hurts the schedule a little bit. Nobody was, you know, from that standpoint, that hurts UCF. But I agree with Greg in that stance. You know, that's a more of a personal thing there. But that matters. That brand matters. And well, look it's at basketball. Is, What's the basketball game you can think of last year? That Florida that State. To, boom. Uh, you know, you talk about these in-state games against, you know, those big schools. They're playing Florida State again next year in basketball. Yep. And that was one of the hyped games, you know. You have to be willing to play ball and in other sports, maybe not baseball right now, just because you were saying about Florida, but basketball, softball, tennis, you know, all these other sports. Yeah. The, the big schools are willing to, to play on a more level playing field. Football operates different. You know, it it operates on a different, on a different plane of existence compared to the others. And, And you have to be willing to play by the rules of those who have the strength yeah. and the ones in the strength are the ones that don't have to fill your schedule in two years. They're the ones that have the strength. By the way, in Greg's defense, what he do to replace now this year is COVID. So he was handcuffed, but he's, he has Florida state on the schedule. He had Ole Miss this year on the schedule, three game series. They were number one ranked in the country. That's the games that people talked about the most this year in baseball. Nobody mm-hmm. cared about UCF Tulane and New Orleans during the season. Nobody cared about a UCF Jacksonville series, uh, at least not the casual fan. The diehards are always in. Uh, we're in This it. isn't about diehards, though. It's not. And I think some of the diehard fans don't, don't understand that because I think the major- I would say a good, strong percentage of the fans that are complaining about this Florida game are the diehards that are going to go to Bethune. They're going to go watch and play FAMU. They're going to get excited about it. And that's fine. Great. But that's not the, that's not the majority. Where is that fringe fan, the casual fan 
that can't go to every game, that doesn't watch every game. Those matter because that puts you over the top. You, you know, and I think, look, there's a reason why the Peach Bowl, people cared more about the Auburn game in 2017 than they did, say, the SMU game that year. Why? It's a big game. That's where more people are tuned in. The casual fans are tuned in. This is a big deal. And and I'm sorry that people are di- some of them are disappointed. I like playing the best. If you're going to be one of the best teams, if you're going to talk about it and recruit like it, play them. You lose, you weren't meant to play. You know, you weren't meant to be as good as you thought you were going to be. That's just the end of the world there. Yeah, but- I mean, I'll, I'll be honest. Uh, I am not particularly interested in being the bottom seed uh, in the CFP just to get trucked because I really wasn't the best team. Um, right. That, you, know, you put yourself on a national stage and then get embarrassed. Uh, that that doesn't help your program. Just being there, that doesn't help your program, especially the way this new playoff system is supposed to be designed. You, you think the NFC East did themselves any justice with a team going six and 10? I mean, you know, that's, it was embarrassing. Yeah, right. but that's the rules. You know, I know you have strong feelings about that, but that's the, you know, those are the rules in which you play. So, you know what, you know, play against a good team, win, lose yeah find out what went wrong by the and way you know what Pre- then you, you get ready for a conference schedule yep you know what you you play against good teams and they help you get better and look at boise state the last two decades they're still living off their big wins against the virginia techs and the oregons they've won in the regular georgia they beat georgia and atlanta you could argue that boise state the last few years haven't been to the boise standards but because they've built all this equity with the success of the marquee wins they've had because they've scheduled teams, they get the benefit of the doubt from people. And I think the same would be applied to UCF moving forward is they'll get benefit of the doubt by playing these games and people will stop knocking them. UCF didn't had a problem with 2017. Oh, you're getting two or two, you're not fair, you're this or that. You know why you got knocked and you weren't in the playoff? Because playing Maryland doesn't do squat for you in this system, it doesn't. And play, you know what? You should have kept Texas in that schedule. Obviously, Scott Frost, they got away from that game. Nobody knew they were going to go undefeated that year. So he just wanted to improve the team. But if you play Texas, that gets more eyeballs. That gets you more respect. I'm sorry. That's the way it works. You don't have to like it, but that's the way the system is. If you don't like it, then don't follow it. Right, exactly. And I want to repoint out something that you mentioned. Uh, UCF was the one who got out of that Texas game. Yes. Scott Frost decided yeah, we're not going to play you. That was completely yeah. on the UCF side. And they replaced it with, um, I forget who they replaced. They basically was given the choices, give up the Maryland game or the Texas game. And he gave up the Texas game uh, the way I was told about that. And you know what? He was, he would have been better off keeping the Texas game. That year, that Texas team wasn't that great, but they would have gotten more bang for their buck beating a Texas than they would have beaten a Maryland. And that's well, how I this mean, sport works. He- I, that that would have gone without saying outside of the year that that Maryland just you know ripped it apart in the ACC. Mm-hmm. Uh, Maryland's not a not a you know a, a blue blood program like a Texas is. I mean, if you get a chance to play against you know a team with with that kind of you know reputation, you play against the team with the top reputation because you use that for your resume builder. I I it just you know that that kind of blows my mind. But you know you you. You talk about, you know, you know, playing, you know, Boise kind of stepping back. I think there's more to it. Uh, we talk about, you know, television contracts. Well, the Mountain West television contract is nothing short of awful. 
Yep. It's absolutely horrendous. Well, UCF has got the benefit of the Americans television package, which despite people complain about, actually gives good exposure. You bring in a good team, a Florida, you know, uh, uh, an Auburn, an old, you know, uh, a Georgia, you know, just just throw random, you know, teams that have reputation. Well, guess what? ESPN is contractually obligated to have so many games on ABC that are hosted by AC, AAC. Teams. And don't think TV doesn't play a role in this, by the way. TV don't. plays a major role. Uh huh. I mean, I bet you TV played a nice role in this. Yep. Guarantee you. That UCF uh, Florida game, unless one of the teams falls completely on their face and has the season of you know to forget, is going to be on a major network. They're going to be on ESPN two, probably at the lowest. Yeah, as long as both at programs, the lowest at the lowest, and if both programs take care of business, that'll be a big game. Uh, so yeah, I TV, can't see TV I, likes this. TV likes this. Recruits like this. They love this. I don't think you can. We can, right. you know, we can I mean, overstate this. So let, yeah, let me just paraphrase because a lot of you know, for all you naysayers, recruits like this, TV likes this, administrators like this because it's money and it's tickets. Coaches like this because it's big games, especially if you're Gus. They, they've targeted that, and then the casual fan likes this. Who the heck is upset again? Oh. It's the selfish, not fa- it's the selfish fan. It's oh, I, I want to go twelve and oh, I don't think it's fair, and then get throttled in the first round because yeah. you never actually tested your team. Right? Because guess what? If this playoff that everybody's so, like Jeff loves so much, if it goes to twelve, you're probably gonna have to play three or four of these Florida teams in a row. So you well, might as well get used to be to- Florida teams, but you're you're dead. You're playing if you're not if you don't have a bye, you have a 17 yeah. game season. That's an NFL season. That's that's rough. So you know what? Right. I, I wouldn't try just to get a seat at the table. I would try to get the head seat at the table. But and it and it helps. I'm you not in, in charge. Plus, if you don't get that quote, and I don't know who knows what the rules will be for that playoff. But let's say you don't get that highest ranked group of five title, you could still be in the mix for an at large. By playing good games. Well, it's not even a. Uh, it's not even the a you know automatic G five spot. That would probably go. That based on all indications, that would go away. You know, you still have. You could still put together a good season, and if your metrics are better than say the Pac twelve, you know, Oregon goes ten and two or or nine and three, and then wins the Pac twelve championship. You know. Uh, an 11 and one UCF that lost to Florida, but ran the table in the American would still be a very high chance of getting in. And part of why the PAC 12, you know, had, even though they've been down still has reputation over the American, it goes back to their strength of schedule metrics. It's a great point. It's a great point. If you hope that everybody in the league, like South Florida is, Tulsa plays Oklahoma State basically every year. If everybody in the league plays a tough schedule, that's going to benefit you. You've seen that with baseball and softball. That's why they're top five leagues in those sports because they play out of conference a tough schedule. And if you do that in the American, you're going to get more respect. You pass the Pac-12s of the world, and you get yourself in the mix not only to be in the playoffs but to maybe have multiple bids and get the possible seeds out of it. But more importantly than all that, make more money, which is more money. And, and not only on top of that, but you you look at it from a cascading standpoint. 
you have an awesome run, you know, where we're, you know, the American beats good out of conference teams and you do it more than once. Well, now you're building brand value. Yes. We talk about brand value as the, the biggest thing now in, you know, in the conference, uh, you know, alignment discussion. It's not about TV markets. Uh, people still rely on that. Well, guess what? TV markets is no longer a strong metric. No. You know, thanks to cord cutting, it really isn't. Uh, no. In fact, it's not, it shouldn't even be the primary driver of a conversation. It's brand value. How do you build brand value? Aside from getting the casual fan from, from beating those big games that get onto, you know, ABC and are the primetime game of the week. It's also, you know, just getting on the field, you know, it's, it's you know, you may not win the game, but Hey, uh, these guys are scrappy. I like what this, what, what the product they bring, you know, what? I'm going to, I'm going to, you know, quietly root for these guys. as like my second or third team. That's how you build it. You got to look at us from also from a long-term perspective. This isn't, you know, this isn't a vacuum. You know, you do well in one season, you parlay it into the next season, you parlay it into the next season and so on and so on. And, and that's how you build a strong program. You know, you don't, you don't have a flash in the pan moment. You know, 2017 was great, but 2018 made it even better. You know, you have to, you have to build one from the other. Uh, that's what we didn't see from 2013 to 2014. 2013 had a great run 2014 well yeah they they won a conference championship uh that's because the american was was a kind of a weak conference that year and no one really wanted it uh, but you know that, that's you got to part you you got you got to stack one on the other on the other and you can't do it if you never get on the field play those games man it's fun they're fun games that's what makes memories and man life is short so you know don't worry about it let them play. If we're good enough, we'll win those games. And if you're not good enough, you weren't meant to, uh, you weren't didn't deserve any of the other stuff uh, behind yeah. that. So I think we can summarize this really, really easily for, for, for you and I, Eric, uh, if you want to be a fan of perpetually playing Florida Atlantic, um, <laughs> we're not your guys. Yeah. Go enjoy <laughs> those games in Boca and that dump. What is it? 10,000 over there. You'll enjoy that. All right. That's true folks. Tell the audience where they can find you. And I'm sure people argue with you after listening to this segment. Oh, yeah, bring it on. You can catch me on Twitter at StatBoyDrew. All right, thanks, Drew. When we come back, Bryson Turner will join us. We'll talk about the Major League Baseball draft that took place this week. Three nights were drafted, and what does that mean for UCF in 2022? Plus, later, we'll take other uh, your questions not related to this UCF Florida deal. Sorry. Back with more here. You're listening to the Black and Gold Banneret Podcast. And welcome back to this edition of the Black and Gold Banneret Podcast. Of course, this past week was the Major League Baseball draft, and three UCF players were drafted. Colton Gordon, perhaps the surprise to many, drafted in the eighth round. Of course, you had Josh Crouch and Jack Sinclair drafted three Knights players in the draft. Joining us now to discuss it is Black and Gold Banneret's our very own Bryson Turner, who's written about it. You could read it right now on blackandgoldbanneret.com. And Bryson, let's start with kind of surprising a little bit. Were you surprised? Kind of give us a th- your thoughts on this draft and, and how it fared for UCF with three guys getting taken, including Gordon. I think that of the UCF players that were eligible to get drafted, I was not surprised that it was these, th- that it was these three to get drafted. Colton Gordon 
even injured, you know, he still is a major talent on the mound. And even though he, he, he would probably have to take a discount money wise because he still has to rehab his, his elbow. Um, I think that, you know, it was, it'd be a no brainer for a team to not at least take a shot at him. Um, beyond that, um, beyond that, the other two players that were drafted were Josh Crouch and Jackson Clare. And I think both of those guys definitely did had paid their dues in getting their MLB scouts to pay attention to that. Josh Crouch in particular had a, an amazing breakout year last season. And so uh, I'm glad that an MLB team took notice of that and is, and is, you know, drafting him, hoping to develop him even more after just this one year, just absolute amazingness out of him. Um, and then we have Jackson Clare, who um, his, his final stretch in 2021 after Colton Gordon got hurt was absolutely amazing amazing like he stepped he really stepped up when the starting rotation needed him I did some calculate some calculations and basically before Colton Gordon tore his UCL which is why he needed the Tommy John surgery Sinclair was one in four and pitching a 5.97 ERA at the time in his final six games of the season after Colton Gordon got hurt Sinclair went four and one and in that stretch pitched a 3.45 ERA pretty much as good as anyone has been on the mound. So that stretch at the end, I think can really showcase what Jackson Clair is really capable of. And I think him getting drafted in like one of those later rounds, 16 is definitely worth is definitely a worthy spot for him, for him to go. There are some other, um, other players that were entered in the draft that I do think maybe could have been drafted had the number of rounds been at 40 and not 20, because that was a recent change that was made to the draft. And we'll see if maybe they, that might uh, lead to some, some of those nights, maybe possibly leaving for undrafted free agency, though, again, that's a decision that is entirely up to them. And I can't really say if they'll go or not. And I am going to, uh, for future segments be going to be under the presumption that the, that anyone not drafted in the draft is staying. So yeah. I just want to make sure I make, I just want to make sure I make that clear, but I do want, but that, uh, for the purposes of our later discussions that, well, that's what we're going to do, but I want to make sure I'm completely transparent in saying that, you know, un- undrafted free agency is a thing. And with the having of the number of the rounds, that means less players getting drafted. So we could see some players in undrafted free agency. And I just wanted to make sure that, that, um, that, you know, that's a possibility that's out there, but it, for a few, for, for the purposes of later discussion, we're going to assume that if you're drafted in the MLB draft, you're probably going to leave. And if you're drafted in, and if you're not drafted, you're staying. Very good. All right. Uh, the Gordon thing may have caught a lot of people off guard, but one person that wasn't caught off guard, Bryson, was Greg Lovelady, right? He told you in the media after the USF game in the American Conference Championship game that he actually thought, despite the injury to Colton, that he would get drafted, right? Yes, he yes he did. Uh, I I'm glad that he took the time to talk about Colton. You know, he had been out for a while at that point, but he basically took the opportunity in that press conference to talk about each uh, player that was probably entered 
in the MLB draft. And when he brought up Gordon, you know, he said that he was uh, that without the Tommy John. So pre-injury, Gordon was a six round material, like a six, a top six round material. But even with the Tommy John surgery, he's, um, he still thought a team would definitely take a chance on him, especially if it was at a discount, because, you know, it's like a high, it's a low risk, high reward type of type of play. And uh, I would say that that uh, lo- that love lady did, had a really accurate representation of that. Let's get into now what this means for the team in 2022 here, Bryson. Now, the Gordon thing is unique because I think we all knew he was probably going to be out next year anyway. So I think you would have going to plan ahead without him in 22. But for those that haven't followed baseball on a close, on a you know daily basis, what do you expect to see? And obviously, there's a let's let's let everybody know. Additions could be made by between now and the fall. Subtractions could be made, you know, between now and the fall. But we're just basing this on what we know today, as we record this in mid of July. So that's what we're basing this on, because obviously there's the transfer portal and obviously. But by the time, what do you expect to see as far as some of the names to look for in the as far as pitching uh, in 2022? All right. And we want to. All right. So if we're going to look at pitching. We have um, the big thing is, is that we 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 are we already know we lost Colton Gordon. And then we have Jackson and then we're losing Jackson Clare to the Washington Nationals. So if anyone wants to keep an eye on Jackson Clare's. Uh, journey to the show he'll be in the washington nationals organization so um but as far as we're concerned at the pitcher's mound the biggest concern that i have is starters 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 that is what our achilles heel was last season and it's going to be a have to be improved a lot if we're going to have uh, to you know be a factor in the American Athletic Conference, heck, USF managed to get pretty deep in the post in the postseason because of how stalwart a starting pitching unit they had. Like I had pointed out, so um, so I think that that us making sure that we have a solid starting rotation is going to be important. And losing guys like Colton from injury, which we already know, already had you know some time to uh, come to peace with, and now but now losing Jackson Clare. Now that's going to definitely be a pretty big blow. We also lost AJ Jones, although uh, uh, although considering how his play was, you know, it, you know it is what it is. So let's go ahead and just look through what we have right now. So right now, the only starting pitcher, the, um, the only starting pitcher that that we probably know is going to be there for sure is Hunter Pattison. So Patterson was a started the season in the rotation, had some issues, went went to the mound or no went to the bullpen, managed got, worked himself back up, and then once Colton Gordon was out for a little bit, I think he was maybe out for one or two series before Hunter Patterson was put back into the rotation right away, right back in the rotation. But once he did, he was completely lights out. Love Lady talked about how um, you know he was showcasing the potential that he showed in fall ball and now and it looks like we may already pretty much have our prime candidate for who's going to take over the kind of the the our our i guess de facto ace for that uh hole that colton gordon left so patterson i think is a definite i would say is a pretty definite lock so that's one and uh now 
how many starters do we want to talk about? Do we want to have uh, three, four? No, just give me some names. Just names we got to look at. As you mentioned, we lose St. Clair. We're going to lose, obviously, Colton Gordon uh, as of now. Just, I mean, Hunter, you're right. I think that is significant. Some people wondered, would he get drafted and so forth? What's his future like? He's the guy, right? It's going to have to, if he's st- you know, going to lead this rotation, who else could be in arms? Uh, you know, it could be the is the answer, perhaps. You know, we'll see. Maybe they're trying to address that via the transfer portal, too. That is certainly something. Now, one thing that I think will that I think we want to take a look at is Kenny Serwa. So I think Kenny Serwa could very easily be back in the rotation. He definitely did not have the best season last season. He had a 5.81 ERA, three and five going three and five. So not the best starter out there, but he did start all of last season. He has the experience, maybe just had a bad year. I mean, I remember watching him in the final uh, in the final uh, series, and he had pitched a pretty good game. So there's all I'm I have fa- I have faith in him, and um, I remember that in that final series on Senior Day, they were originally going to honor Kenny Serwa in the Senior Day festivities alongside Jordan Rathbone and AJ Jones, but they pulled him out very like at the eleventh hour, basically. And I talked to uh, baseball SID Colin Yeager about this, and he told me that it was because uh, he was Serwa was finally given another year of eligibility. And so the fact that they pulled him out of the senior day festivities and he got another year of eligibility makes me already made me think that he was going to be coming back if he wasn't drafted. And so now that we saw that he, you know, he wasn't drafted, he's definitely probably definitely going to be coming back. So I would say Kenny Serwa is going to be in is going to be in the starting rotation alongside Hunter Patterson. Then after that, we th- things get a little bit murky. So besides looking at the uh, pl- the other players that started on the mound this season, you have um, first off you have Zach Hunsicker. Hunsicker started five times last season. His um, la- last season, his fully his uh, full full season ERA was three point three eight. And he went um, two and three, two and three. So, and I would definitely want to want to commend Hunsicker for doing for coming in because he was a major managed to basically be a good stopgap when Colton Gordon got hurt and the rotation was kind of like didn't really know where to go. If Sinclair was able to fill the hole of like the lead pitcher right after Colton Gordon got hurt, like in that intervening time when between when Colton Gordon got hurt and Hunter Patterson got back, came back into the rotation in that intervening time, Sinclair led the rotation and then Hunsaker gave it another arm. And Hunsaker did a pretty good job with it too. A pretty good job with it too. Not the best. He's still pretty young, but he did get some pretty good experience there. And I think Greg Lovelady could 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 easily see that and put him in the starting rotation alongside Patterson and Serwa. Uh, another pitcher that got a, um, the only other pitcher that got a start last year besides the the all the names that we have mentioned before: Jones, Sinclair, Patterson, uh, Gordon, all that is uh, Ryan Saltonstall. He started one time. And uh, he at one time finished with a 7.43 ERA. Now I can actually say, uh, give a definitive answer with this one. I am, um, if you look on the black and gold banneret, I did a story about uh, profiling Jordan Rathbone and his like and his uh, baseball career, particularly his final season at UCF, where he lit up the bat, uh, just ama- amazing jet performance out of him. 
And uh, I talked to Ryan Saltonstall on that story because uh, he and Rathbone were both teammates from community college. So they both came to UCF together from South Mountain Community College in Arizona. And I can definitively say after talking to both of them that uh, Ryan Saltonstall is actually, is actually done. Uh, he's gonna be out next year. He has an injury. If I recall correctly, I believe it's a torn labrum. And so he is, and so as far as on the, on, being on the field, he is not going. He is not going to be back next year. So, so that means that basically it is. It's an open competition. If we want to, if we want to look at things right now, I think the top three that we know. If we want to look at the people we have right now, the most obvious three are Patterson, Serwa, and Hunsaker. Now, if, if I want to throw my hat in the ring about a player, a relief pitcher that maybe could make the make the jump to the starting rotation, because now obviously we could go to the transfer portal if we wanted to start, either improve our starting or maybe add a fourth one if we wanted to. But if we, if I'm looking at a pitch at a relief pitcher that could easily transition to being a starter, I would I would say Ben Vespi. I think Vespi would be a really good choice to make the leap from the uh, from the bullpen to the starting rotation. He's made several fairly extend fairly extended relief appearances last season. If I recall correctly, he went uh, yes, he's went he went five innings in in the East Carolina game at uh, one of the East Carolina games. He went four innings against Tulane four innings in a game against Wichita State on May 9th. So he certainly can be stretched. So he certainly can be stretched out over a longer um, period. Now, obviously he's going to, he would probably need to be trained to um, do that much more consistently, but you know, it's certainly something that he has over some of the other relief pitchers out there. So um, if I had to say, if there's any, if there's one relief pitcher that could make the jump to the starting rotation, I would keep my eye on Ben Vespi for that. So, if, so as far as the right. people that we have now, the, my confidence order would be Patterson, Serwa, Hunsaker, Vespi. All right. Now, Josh Crouch, big bat uh, behind the plate, and as well as obviously could play uh, first base. That's going to be big production that they're going to have to try to offset. What do you see there as the, the, the possibilities there for UCF now to replace Crouch? Well, there are two catchers already that the Knights have on the roster. You have Matthew Melendez, and then you have Ben McCabe. Now, if watching baseball from last season, you know Ben McCabe spent a lot of time at first base, but he is he does play catcher too. And I think that it's going to be interesting to see if they, if uh, lovely decides to keep him at first base or he's, if he's going to go, if he's going to go back to catcher. Uh, now I would say that I have this little depth chart that I made to just to kind of uh, give me some visuals on this. And I think Ben McKay probably should go back to catcher. I think because we, because we have Nick Romano to talk about and Nick Romano his the 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 the, ba- the roster even lists him as a first baseman. So if I were if I wanted to give Nick Romano some time on the field and he's a first baseman, then I would probably move McCabe to catcher so that way we can still have a pretty stalwart bat there. McCabe hit hit a hit a great good amount of dingers last season too, just like Crouch. 
and then Nick Romano would go play at first. Nick Romano now Romano did had a very resurgent late season uh, late season appearances in the American Athletic Conference tournament. So I think that for anyone worried, you know, having watched majority of last season and Romano not really living up to the, some of the potential you might have had based on, you know, pre on like the 2020 season. I think that I think you should be fine because it's not like it's not there anymore because Romano's still able to still able to do it and in the batter's box. But then as, but as far as pitching is as far as um, fielding is concerned, I think we could see Nick Romano play for Nick Romano play first base. Romano really kind of you know turned it around at the end there of the year. So uh, we'll see what happens. Of course, still a long, long ways to go as uh, we're just still in July and so many questions. And before you know it, though, we'll get some answers once we report to fall ball. That's going to which we didn't have last year. Remember, we didn't have a fall ball. Uh, hopefully we'll be on track to have a fall ball and we can all see the fall ball in person. Yes. One answer, actually, that I'm going to be very going to be very much looking forward to. Uh, we talked about before that um, that we 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 know we basically we probably know we pretty much know that we're going to lose five five players. We have our three draftees, which are Colton Gordon to the Astros, Josh Crouch to the Detroit Tigers, and Jackson Clare to the Washington Nationals. And then you have the two players we lost from not having any more college eligibility because they were seniors, A.J. Jones and Jordan Rathbone. We talked about A.J. Jones earlier when we talked about the pitching staff, but I do want to take some time to talk about the outfield gap left by Jordan Rathbone. Uh, I, talked to, I talked to him a few times, for a couple of few times for the profile I did on him, and the topic, uh, and the topic came up of who is going to come up in the outfield with him gone. So, um, so we have Pablo. So the big one, Pablo Ruiz. He, he started in the left field a lot last season. I would fully expect him back there again this time. Did a great job. At, in, in, at, did a great job, young guy. I think we will definitely see him there. Uh, center field, uh, Jeffrey Pena didn't get drafted, so uh, so likely coming back, I imagine. And and so I would imagine him being back in center field. Did a great job there. Speedy, speedy guy. Uh, definitely UCF's resident speedster. But then it comes down to right field. Who is going to replace Jordan Rathbone? Because Rathbone played every single game in the in the pandemic short in 2020 season and the full 2021 season. So we really didn't have a chance to see who could replace him out there. Um, I talked, so when I talked to Rathbone, I asked him like, you know, Hey, you know, uh, you know, what kind of players out there do you think can take over right field from you? And he gave me, and he gave me four names. One is actually Pablo Ruiz. So he thinks that Pablo Ruiz could maybe make the transition from left field to right field. So that's certainly a possibility, but he's been playing left field for a while. I want to go ahead and just assume that he's going to just stay there because we want to bring up some new names, you know? So, um, and, and it could easily be the case that this new name could take over left field and Pablo Ruiz could go to right field. Who knows? Um, but, but the three new names that he brought into this conversation, uh, first up, I want to bring up one that probably will be familiar to, to some UCF fans already, Trent Taylor. So Trent Taylor made several appearances last, last, last season. He played, in 30, he played in 33 games. He only started in seven, so he wasn't around all that much. 
but he's also a he's also a speed he's a speedster if I recall correctly. He did some pinch he did some pinch running, and I think that and I think that uh, you know having another speedster out there is would certainly benefit a benefit. Jeffrey Payne, you can't do all the base stealing around here, so. So I think that if uh, they if Love Lady wants to keep Trent Taylor's development going further, then that can certainly be a great then that then you know him taking over right field or left field depending on where Ruiz goes would certainly be a good choice. Um, if we want to go the young, however, we want to go the young guy route. We want to keep Trent Taylor as kind of a utility option. We um, Rathbone mentioned Colin Colin Flynn. Now Colin Flynn is one of the is a fret was a freshman coming in he's from coral he's from coral springs didn't really get to play all that much last season looking at his uh looking at his statistics i believe he didn't really play yeah he didn't play a lot but that's where part of the development there you got to kind of move forward there so so that's a possibility and then one name that i think really intrigued me when he said it because when he said it like when he said this one I, something went in my mind went really and that is tom jostin now i i know what y'all some of y'all are probably thinking that, that you know follow the baseball team like jostin didn't he play like dh and second baseman and maybe third base once in a while why would he be in right field so Jostin, I obviously, you know, see, from seeing Jostin play multiple positions, he's definitely a Swiss Army knife kind of guy. So I wouldn't be shocked if they would give him the ability to play right feet, to play right field. But another wrinkle in, in a wrinkle that maybe might lend credence to this theory is that Jostin's bat is, bat is one of the more understated ones in the UCF lineup. Jostin has a 253 as a 253 batting average, hit eight home runs, but it certainly was it certainly were some pretty clutch at bats from the you know from the American Athletic Conference tournament and, and all that. So that's a bat you really do want to keep in the game. However, the thing is is that there's another a second baseman on the team because Jostin played second base a lot is John Montez and Montez have last season hit a 275 bat, batting at batting average. So that's certainly a bat you want to keep in the game right. as well. So that means we have two second basemen. Obviously, you know, one can't, you know, one, only one can do, can play the position. So why go ahead and just have, and have Montez play because, you know, we've, Montez is much more of a specialized second baseman. That's really the only place we've really seen him play. So we do. So we put Pop Montez there, and then we take Jostin and put him out in right field. And so I think that's certainly a good possibility. Now, of course, there also is the designated hitter position. Jostin spent a lot of time as a designated hitter last year, so that could so that could certainly be a possibility where Jostin could instead of playing right field, Jostin could just be the team's uh, resident DH. Right. Um, but the fact that Rathbone, na- Rathbone named him as a possible replacement for him is certainly an interesting, an interesting little uh, nugget into this conversation. So um, if, out of all these names, if I had to say what the most, I feel like the most likely thing is going to happen, I think it's going to be Trent Taylor. I would be interested if it were Jostin. It'd be interesting if it were Jostin. 
But I think if we're, but I think if we were, I were a betting man, the odds are, I think it's going to be Trent Taylor, unless Colin Flynn just goes off in fall ball or something. Well, and that's the beauty of fall ball is you get to experiment with some things. So some guys might play positions they haven't played before, and maybe you see how that goes and things like that. Plus, we're not even in, uh, including, you know, the incoming class that's coming in. So uh, should be fun. Should be fun in the fall. Make sure everybody check out. Uh, Bryson's uh, recap of the draft, Colton Gordon getting drafted and the three guys getting drafted with St. Clair uh, and Crouch on blackandgoldbanneret.com right now, right now. Read it, read it, pass it on to your friends, spread the word because Bryson worked like late hours on this and that's, you know, it's a lot of work. Now we've talked a lot about Crouch, UCF losing their main catcher, UCF softball losing their starting catcher via the transfer portal. Those are one of the questions that's in a Q&A section, which we'll address next. You're listening to the Black and Go Better It podcast. Welcome back to the Black and Go Better It podcast. Eric Lopez alongside Bryson Turner. All right, we're going to take uh, now some of our re- listeners' questions. Uh, we did this last week. We'll try to do this, especially uh, throughout, you know, moving forward throughout the summer. Make sure you can always ask questions throughout the week uh, at our Twitter handle, as well as our Facebook page uh as well and bryce said you you're gonna read off some of the questions what are some of the questions we got all right let's go ahead and take one that um you went you mentioned this uh, right before we went to break so i think it's a pretty good first question for us to start off with uh we have one from at ucf guy 23 why did ucf <laughs> softball player transfer overpopulation her position carissa ornelas that's been a very popular question in the last 24 hours because uh, I've been bombarded with those that question. And let me just first say, well, I've, I'm kind of surprised, to be honest, that people are surprised. Like it's Oregon in the Pac-12. Pac-12 in softball is like the holy grail. Now, you know, Carissa is a California kid. They all grow up to play in the Pac-12 at some point. And I can tell you this, Bryson, there are currently 600 and 40 players in the transfer portal in softball since May 10th when the regular season ended. Everybody is basically about three-quarters of the sport is losing some departures uh, via the transfer for various reasons. Number one, you have these roster adjustment. Remember, the last years, this past year's uh, rosters were expanded you had the extra year of eligibility. Well, now you got to get back to your normal numbers. You're not going to be able to keep everybody. That's part of it. But then when you have a good player, the marquee programs kind of quietly like to, hey, you know, if you're, you know, through different people in their voices, different people, travel ball coaches and things like that. Hey, if you're interested in entering, you know, playing here, you could enter the portal and end up going to a bigger program. And I think that's going on a lot in softball. Because remember, Bryson, softball doesn't have a pro league that really is worth, you know, playing a long time. Like, you know, in college baseball, you're even though there's the transfer portal, you're going to see some movement. A lot of movement will not happen because guys will just go pro and get and be eligible for the Major League Baseball draft. There's that goal. If you're a basketball player, your goal is the NBA draft. If you're football, it's the NFL draft. That is not the case in a sport like softball or volleyball. And so as a result, if you're good in a case like Carissa, you're going to draw some eyeballs and you go to a Pac-12 school like Oregon, it makes a ton of sense. 
Uh, I don't think it seems it's a negative. It means there's something wrong with the program. I know some people have brought up other transfers. Uh, Brianna Vasquez going to Iowa. That's a case there where she reunites with Renee Gillespie, who recruited her to come to UCF in the first place. The other players that are transferring uh, basically were up, had one year extra year. They weren't playing here. They want to seek playing time. And in some cases, they're the grad transfer. They want to seek out a transfer, a degree that they probably can't get at UCF. So my point is there's a lot of different reasons for it. But the main thing as far as the Carissa one, since that's the headliner, is, yeah, she's going to a Pac-12 school. Every kid basically does that. Do you have a follow-up on that, Bryce? All right. All right. <laughs> I, I mean, hey, I mean, as somebody, you know, as somebody who grew up on football, the fact that Pac, the Pac-12 is good at something makes me kind of shocked. Oh, so, there they go. Uh, well, they they no, are the premier yeah, softball. Yeah, and I, let me just say, so, from a UCF standpoint, they, will, they have Juliana Wilson, who could play catcher. They have a freshman coming in in Ashley Griffin, who I think they're very high on. Jada Cody, you remember Bryson, Jada Cody played some catching at the end of the year and actually caught Gianna Mancha, who's right now going to be the projected ace. They had great chemistry. Uh, in fact, Gianna's pit ER stats were better with Cody than any other catcher on the staff. So don't be surprised if you see Cody catch a little bit more uh, behind the plate for next year. But they also have Juliana Wilson, and they have the freshman Griffin, who they like a lot. So they got three catchers there. They're, they're going to be fine uh, from that standpoint. But look, this is the new world now in college athletics. Get used to it. You're going to see additions and subtractions, and you're going to lose players to bigger programs. That's just the way it is, uh, especially in softball where leagues like the SEC and the Pac-12 get more exposure, get more coverage from other media outlets that cover softball, that's an issue. Uh, I'm not a fan of it, but that's the way it is, and it ain't changing anytime soon. And when and when you have good players, you could be suspect to this. So UCF's not alone to this. UCF's made their own additions as well uh, from that standpoint. So that's what I would look at at the catching position. We uh, addressed the pitching situation on last week's episode, so you could address – I addressed some of that as well. But, uh, you know, they're going to still have their core of Shannon Doherty – Jada Cody, uh, you know, Kennedy Searce, who missed, remember, missed the second half of the year with an injury. She should be back. That's going to be their core on offense. Uh, you know, losing Ornelas hurts, but they have depth there at the catching position. So uh, we, uh, I hope to write about this more in the next week or two. Uh, once things are finalized, I'll go on a much more deeper look on the softball roster for 2022, kind of like baseball, Bryson. They're going to have some questions. But there's still a core that both baseball and softball will have. You know, something we I forgot to we forgot to mention in the previous segment. The baseball team still has a core, especially on the left side of that infield that I know you're excited about with Alex Freeland. It's worth mentioning. We didn't mention that in the last segment. You brought it up to my attention. It, it, it people always focus on who they lose in that bullpen. In that bullpen, right? But people always focus on what you lost and what you don't have. And I think people kind of need to remember that. So sky's not falling. It's my point. All right, next question. Very well said. Very well said. Speaking of being very well said, uh, let's go ahead and do this question from at Corey Esquire underscore PhD. If you could change any rule in any college sport, what would it be? And in parentheses, he commented, this one is for Eric Lopez, as he usually gets on a soapbox. 
Well, I'm not going to dismiss you out of that. Do you want to get on a soapbox? Is there something that you like to be changed there, Bryson? Honestly, if I honestly, if you would ask me that question, prop like a few months ago, it would have been name, image, and likeness rights. But that's kind of been addressed now at this point. And so, as of as of this moment, I nothing really comes to mind right right, right away. Okay. So for I'm me, because you know the one I would have said has kind of been addressed already. I would say I'm assuming. I'm interested to see what here what you what you would have yeah. I would say that um, I'm not going to address the whole transfer stuff because it's not going to change. It's it's kind of out there. Um, I don't know if there were specifics that they was looking for. Uh, sorry, repeat the question again. Question was if you could change if you could change any rule in any college sport, what would it be? Oh. See, changing a rule, that's not, that's different. Like I've been prominent adding re- replay for softball in the postseason, but I'm not going to, I'm not, I'm going to, I'm going to say change the rule. I know you're not going to like this, Bryson. And Jeff hates this, that I say this, but I, I'm going to bring it up. I would change the overtime rule in college football. I hate it. I hate it. It's a gimmick. It's a fluke. It comes down to red zone offense. I would change it to where each team gets a possession, but you actually, you know, have to get some first downs and earn some points. I feel like it, it turns into a shootout, kind of like soccer. We saw this with the Euro championships decided by penalty kicks. I hate that. Uh, I wish it was decided more. And I'm not saying, you know, if you want to move it back to like the 50 yard line, 40 yard line, you know, make them earn it. That's all I'm saying. Uh, otherwise, just play overtime. Each team gets a possession and, you know, and then sudden death. But, you know, I know you disagree because you love the overtime. I mean, I love the overtime more than the NFL overtime. That's really the only reason that I do. But I do understand your point, though, because, you know, especially with the fact that, you know, that kickers are able to kick longer distances nowadays. I think putting the ball at the, at, at you know, just moving the ball back, like, I really don't think that's that big of a change to make, honestly. Like I, the for me, I love college overtime in terms of its structure because it allows the teams to at least you know have a chance to strike back at each other. Because in NFL overtime, you know, I, you know, and as a, as a someone who comes from a fan a family of Atlanta Falcons fans, it just crushed <laughs> it crushed crushed me in the overtime of the Super Bowl where the Atlanta, you know, lost the coin toss, didn't get the ball, Patriots score, that's it. No, no nothing. you can't like go Atlanta can't get on offense and try to to uh, you know, answer. That's it. Game over. So well, I mean, you know, I, mean some so would say, I mean, that's where your defense needs to step in and like stop them from scoring a touchdown. No, it's true. It's true. I, I, and I, I don't I, no, it's true. That's for, it's, and that's true. Yeah, but and and that's true. And I get that. And I think there is certain credence to that. But the way that college football does it, where basically both teams just go at each other, and whoever and whoever manages to prevail prevails. I and where both teams get a shot at it at least. Then I think that that's a really good structure. And what you're proposing really isn't changing the structure; it's just changing the position of the ball and yes, yes. how difficult and how difficult yeah. it is. Make which I agree with. Which yeah. I agree with because because 
I would, I think that the pot that making it harder for the kickers would be the big, would really be the key here. Cause if you put the ball, like the 20, 25 yard line, you can probably bet that the kickers that if they don't, even if they don't move the ball at all, you still have the kicker there. Well, it so, puts more strategy into it. Like, let's say you put the ball back. It's like the opponent, you know, on the other, you have to go 70 yards. Let's say you face a fourth down. There's urgency there. Do you go for it? Do you kick it away? Do you trust your defense? Field position, I think it brings back a lot of the elements that we're used to seeing in football. What I hate about the current system is it eliminates a lot of that. It's just, a, hey, let's just play our red zone offense. And now they've adjusted the rule where I think it's starting in the third overtime. You're going to go for two points. So now you're going to be deciding games based on a two-point play? I think that's atrocity. Um, so I hate it. I agree with you, by the way, for the record. I think both teams should get the ball. So I'm not saying that they shouldn't. All I'm saying is make them earn it. That's all. Because I hate these games that like are 17-17 in regulation and then play 5,000 overtimes and end up being 62 to 55. You know, I don't think that's 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 a that's a bad representation of what the game was. And it just turns gimmicky. And I hate gimmicks. I mean, that that's just my thoughts. But anyway, so that's what I would change. There's my there's my soapbox moment right there. Yeah, no, I, 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 I like that. I think it was really good because it doesn't really go after like, cause I, cause, because it doesn't go after the structure. It just, you know, adds a new wrinkle to it that m- makes it a little difficult. Now I, I want to uh, actually respond to the fourth down thing, because I think that if we want to say place, if you place the ball at a certain yard lines, I think that uh, I don't think punting would probably be allowed in that circumstance. Because why would you punt the ball if the ball was going to end up at like say the forty yard line again anyway? It could lead to it would ha- basically be you have to have a fourth down. Uh, you would have to do a fourth down conversion because punting would really be unnecessary. Well, it depends on how you would set up the overtime. Like I would play straight up. Like in other words, if and that's a valid point. If you don't have punting, then yeah, you probably have to go for it, which would make it exciting. So I'm okay with that. But you could you could do that, or if you want to include kickoffs and punting in that scenario, you could include that in part of strategy. There's I'm not, I'm I'm open to different ideas. I'm not saying it has to be hey kickoff and kickoff overtime. I just hate I just hate what it is currently. I think it's a joke, and I, I don't take it seriously. I'm sorry, I don't. So anyway, <laughs> now you know listening to what you were saying before. Now listening to what you were saying before actually brought up another uh, brought up a um, a circumstance that I didn't really think of as a rule before, but considering that you brought it uh, that you brought it up in your discussion, I want to bring up bring it up for my end as well. So if I so if I did have one rule that I want to change or at least adjust is the instant replay is the instant replay the who has instant replay in the American Athletic Conference with baseball. Because if you remember back in the Wichita State series, I believe it was, Lovelady had a, basically had at it, had at it with some with umpires over some calls and ended up getting ejected from the game. So, and part of that comes from the fact that, you know, John, John Uliano Park is not outfitted with replay capabilities while some other American Athletic facilities, such as I believe East Carolina, is so if i was so if i would i would say that i don't know if this would technically be changing a rule as much as adding a rule right but i think that um that you know ensuring that instant replay is either consist consistently available or not available if you want to 
be unpopular with people, go ahead and do that. But as long as it's fair, you know, make sure that that it's consistent across the entire American Athletic Conference. Because if, it, if a call you if a call can be reviewed at East Carolina's facility while UCF cannot, and it's like you know a big play doesn't choose what stadium it's in. So, you know, if you have a, t- a play where you need to look back on it again, then instant replay should be available to you. And no matter where, no, you know, you know, if your stadium is able to support it. And I would imagine, you know, the American Athletic Conference would be able to support it. I mean, they're a Division One college football program. I feel like that'd be something I'd be able to support. So, um, so I think that would be my rule. I don't. I just didn't think it'd be about it as changing as much as it is just adding a rule. But in making sure instant replay is consistent across the American Athletic Conference baseball scene, that would be what I would do. Softball, by the way, they just passed where they're going to probably do the same thing, and it's going to be up to each conference, and it's going to be interesting how the softball decides to do that. Because I've heard the same. The softball has the same problem that baseball does in that some of the uh, stadiums can do replay some cannot i believe softball can at ucf whereas i know for a fact wichita cannot memphis cannot so we're going to run into that same issue uh so i'm very interested how that the league will handle that that's a good point on your part all right what's the next question all right uh this so let's see what's Let's go ahead and do an um, Corey uh, Corey Esquire PhD submitted a couple a couple more questions. So let's go ahead and get to one of those. Um, let's see. Let's go with this one. Who is the most underappreciated former Knights athlete across any sport? Now I do want to tee up this one thing because at H Delgado underscore Ox did have a response to that question that I think would be in- just interesting for us to kind of react to. He said Phil Dalhauser. Uh, I mean, that's so tricky, right? And we're going to get into more about Phil Dalhauser next week because obviously next week's Olympic week. So we're going to get in, dive into more of the current of UCF alums that will be part of the Olympics. Look for co- coverage of that on blackandgobanneret.com. Bryson is kind of working on that for next week. Uh, but he didn't, he was not an athlete here. Uh, so because, you know, that, it's kind of an interesting deal. Uh, but that's not a bad guess. I think. The most underappreciated. What what would you define the most underappreciated? What, what is it underappreciated by UCF fans? Is it just in general? Uh, you know, I think that's the question that that certainly uh, brings up. You were very passionate about this question. You were intrigued by this. What 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 do you have in mind? So I would say for me for me, I'm a bi- I'm a big football guy, so I'm pro- so I'm probably gonna have a lot of those comment a lot of those ha- comment a lot of thoughts on with in terms of that, but I would say a very under uh, underappreciated Knights athlete I think would be um, I think it would be Cole Schneider and Cole if Schneider only, if only if only because you know he own he he's up there on so many you know, statistical lists of some of the highest marks in UCF history. Are you talking about Ryan Schneider? Oh, Ryan Schneider. Yeah, I was like, wait a minute, like Cole Schneider, the offensive lineman. I was like, wait a minute. No, no, Ryan. man, I was thinking of him. That's my – There you go. No wonder that name. My bad. I mean, he's underappreciated too. I don't – that's a fair – Yeah, that's true. I don't think he's We can talk about offensive lines all day. Um, Uh, So, um, no, Ryan Schneider, the quarterback. Yeah, my bad. 
that is my bad. I was thinking about this year's team then Schneider, you know, Schneider, you know, being a last name, you know, that obviously is not exactly, you know, unique to one one people. Well, so, um, the Ryan yeah, Schneider, Ryan let me bring Schneider. up, yeah, let me so bring up Ryan. Schneider yeah. is, ha, has some high statistical value. And so, yeah, I just think that, you know, I, I wouldn't say, I, it's not like I would put him on the level of Dante, Dante Culpepper, Mackenzie Milton, Blake Bortles, you know, that kind of stuff. It's not like that. But I mean, if you have, like, if you're, a, have such a, you know, have such high statistical marks, I would have felt like, that um that you know we be we we you know hear a little bit more about him as one of the you know pretty good UCF quarterbacks to have you know done the game not on the level of Milton Bortles or Culpepper but you know I mean he he, he, he at least maybe here mentioned every once every once in a while well but, part know, of the <laughs> issue with Ryan and he's turned his life I mean he's changed he's a high school coach he's done great stuff there he his his departure did not end well. He was basically kicked off school. Um, that's why his career abruptly ended in 03 over some issues in class and things like that. So that's probably what kind of hurts him and his legacy a little bit unfairly uh, or not fair. I mean, I'm not saying it's fair or not fair. I'm just saying that's kind of why maybe he's not looked at and revered uh, because of the way it ended. Plus it was the independent era in UCF. So it, that's kind of an era that gets kind of lost, but it's a good trend, you know, Underappreciated? I, I mean, boy, let me ask you this, Bryce, because I think you're a perfect person to ask this. How aware are you about Michelle Akers and the fact that she played here at UCF? I And it's weird to say because everybody knows who Michelle Akers is, but yet I feel like she's still underappreciated because you don't see her, like, recognized on campus, per se, right? Like, she's the greatest athlete in the history of UCF. She, by far, that's not a debate. With her accomplishments, she's the, one of the greatest women's soccer players of all time, if not. We had her on last year. I'm a huge fan. And yet, I still feel where she's underappreciated considering what she who she is. Uh, and I don't know what the answer is. I feel like she should, like, I would personally name the soccer and track and field after her. Like, that field should be named after her, in my opinion. Um, so that's one name that jumps to my mind. Uh, from that standpoint but i don't know if that qualifies under this category now but what's your thoughts because you're one of the youngsters how aware are you because i think you're a perfect test about how aware are you about michelle Akers? because i think that's something that a lot of the young ucf fan base and media like you know people that now are going to school at ucf are not as aware of the previous athletes you know pre-american conference maybe if we go that far back so i would say a lot of the athletes from the 2000s and 90s are not appreciate are very underappreciated because I think a lot of people think like for example in the football program that they just showed up five years ago but there's been a lot of success in history with the football program that goes beyond that yeah I mean honest honestly like the only the only UCF player that I could really think about like pre you know roughly 2000 you know the roughly pre-2000s era when UCF really first kind of burst onto the scene was um was um Dante Culpepper and that's only because he had a, like an NFL Hall of Fame level you know car- career in the pros and the U- and the whole situation they have with the USFL and everything like that and so that's really the only UCF football player I really know from that far back 
But yeah, I mean, I'll, I'll go ahead and just kind of date myself real quick. So that way everyone kind of knows the, the situation. So I've looked up Michelle Akers and that kind of shows you I don't really know who that is. Uh, her college career at UCF was from 1985 to 1988. Yep. So to put that in perspective, uh, my parents were not married yet when that happened. So I was, so as far as me being born, that's still a long way away from happening and when Michelle Lakers was being in college football. And even, even her performances on the national team from 1985 to 2000, I was born in 2000. So Michelle Lakers' appearances on the U.S. national team were already done by the time I was born. So, um, so yeah, I, so I wouldn't really have been, uh, been around to see that. I think another big factor is the fact that soccer, I, do, I don't think soccer was as big as it was back then as it is now because soccer soccer i think is starting to really make gain a foothold in america now i know that that's something that hasn't really been a thing in the past but i think now is when is finally it's things are finally starting to really take hold as far as like just you know professional soccer we obviously have had the, the u.s national team which is great but the U.S. national, but obviously the Olympics are like once every four years. The FIFA World Cup is once every four years, and so it's not like you know the U U USA the USA would get all soccer crazy all the time. It would just be like once every four years because USA beat everybody else. You know what I mean? So, yeah. um, and that and so that means it's not really a chance for you know some soccer players to make an individual name for themselves all the time obviously if you're on the national team you could but of course there's there's less opportunities to and now with the mls being a thing and and only and really and really being a pretty recent uh a pretty recent their first season was in 1996 and even 1996 and even then as far as orlando is concerned like just the, if you want to look at right 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 orlando, well uh, like here you know, but here orlando, you bring orlando. i'm glad i'm glad you brought up the mls and men's soccer because the other athlete i would bring up is underappreciated is winston debose who is a ucf athletic hall of famer is a florida sports hall of famer had a great career helped build the bring uh you know the beginning of the ucf men's soccer program had a long illustrious pro career playing in the uh what was the mls version back in the day with in the pro leagues play for the tampa bay rowdies i gotta give a shout out to our friend trace chalco host of sons of ucf live he was he covered and fought actually as a fan winston debose and he interviewed winston debose a couple years ago did a fantastic one-on-one -on -one interview i didn't know much about winston debose and i consider myself a ucf historian and he brought up, we had, since then, I had Winston DeBose on, uh, we had him on this podcast about a year ago. If you remember, if you followed my UCF 250 series from last year, I had, I ranked Winston DeBose as the number three greatest UCF male athlete of all time. And I think it's, it's rightfully so. And he's donated to the men's soccer program. He's another one that's underappreciated. He's one of the greats of all time. Uh, you could argue a Jim Rudy, a coach that helped, start up the men's and the women's soccer program is underappreciated as well he's in the ucf hall of fame it is worth noting the ucf athletics hall of fame. one of the things that would help this bryson is if the use uh, the ucf athletics hall of fame becomes more consistent and airs on a yearly basis i think there's enough athletes so you can have a class every year or at least every other year now some of that i think they were planning on doing that from what i was told but obviously covid 
made some changes to that. I've been told from sources, don't be surprised. Look for the UCF Athletic Hall of Fame to possibly be back this fall. So, and it'll be, which is different than what they've been doing recently, which is hold the Hall of Fame ceremony in the spring. Apparently, they're going to move it to the fall. So, I think that's going to help in a lot of this. Um, but I think there's a lot of athletes, and it's not a one person answer. And I know that's, I'm, I'm cheating on the question, but. To me, Akers, I still think is underappreciated, but I think, definitely think Winston DeBose is underappreciated on the men's soccer side. Uh, I think basketball, I'm not sure if you went with basketball. I think people are well aware of Bo Clark and Torchy Clark. Uh, I don't know if people, I think people still underappreciate Jermaine Taylor, who I think is pound for pound, still the best basketball player in the history of UCF. Um, baseball, uh, who's underappreciated? I don't know. I would say... Is a Justin Pope, Jason Arnold, who I think were part of the best UCF baseball team ever in 2001. I think, are they underappreciated? Uh, I think that's fair. I think that with women's sports, you could argue a lot of them are always underappreciated. So anyway, I know I just copped out and gave you a bunch of answers, but it's a really good question. And I think there's a lot of people that are underappreciated, I guess, unfortunately. And hopefully the school will do a better job moving forward. And I think they are going to try to do this uh, to honor the past. Uh, Mark Daniels recently did a great article. I don't know if you saw it, Bryson, on Dante Culpepper. And how yes, it's, I did read that. Fantastic for Mark, who's obviously the voice of ECF and obviously know as well inside out. And I think it's a great point. And he wasn't saying that there's – and he made a point about this on his radio show. There's no, He said there's no issues between Culpepper and UCF. Culpepper is one that just doesn't like to be in the limelight and things like that. But he's underappreciated, Bryson big time in football because there's a lot of people right in the last five years that think that McKenzie Milton is the greatest quarterback and the greatest football player ever. And certainly he's in the conversation, but if you, I watch Culpepper like Dante Culpepper, Bryson, if it wasn't for Dante Culpepper, I'm not sure that I would be at UCF because I didn't hear, I never heard of UCF until I watched, I heard about this Dante Culpepper kid playing quarterback and being a future first rounder. I actually drove up with some buddies in 1998 on Halloween weekend to watch Dante Culpepper in his senior year play against Jim Tressel in Youngstown State. I think he's underappreciated. He put UCF football on the map. You know, that was right when they just moved into the FBS level. Uh, so he's underappreciated. And Mark, and I encourage people, if you haven't so, read Mark's article about Dante. Hopefully we can see Dante back at a football game. We haven't seen him in a while. Yeah, I would, I would certainly love that too. I mean – I think uh, one one reason for that is because UC is because UCF has only just recently become a national brand. Um, I think that that's really a big deal because, like you know, when you're still trying to work your way up to that point, it's kind you know you kind of have to you know kind of split your dip, split your attention of you you know of honoring the past and make trying to uh, you know push forward into the future and i think now now that ucf has really really like got a stranglehold uh, in in just the national you know the national attention you know market and i don't think it's going to let go anytime for anytime soon i think now you're finally able to go you know hey we we've had these players before before that were absolutely insane like dante culpepper i mean for me, like, again, like I said, Culpepper was the only UCF athlete I ever knew of 
you know, pre like, you know, pre my time. And that's only because, and that was only because of just how legendary he was within the in the NFL and the USFL. So, I so yeah, I would absolutely love it if Dante and a few other uh, UCF alum alumna would be able to um, you know come back as especially Culpepper and really just people from the pre two thousands era that got helped to get UCF to where it is now because it didn't just start in the 21st century. It's been, it's been a right. pretty long time in the making. And as a current student, I would love to be able to, I would love to be able to learn about these guys. Cause you know, be the, because, you know, you think that, you know, you're root, you're rooting for like a kind of a, you know, uh, underdog type team now, but uh, team now with UCF, imagine doing that back before 2000 when UCF was thinking things like, you know, an independent or the Mac or right, right. that type of situation. Like imagine being a UCF fan then. So, and I can't do that because, you know, again, born in 2000. So yeah, I, I would completely agree with that. Like Dante, it's weird to think like to, to equate Dante Culpepper with the word underappreciated, but if you really want it, but I think that, you know, that using that definition and, and, and using that context of being underappreciated, then yeah, I would kind of agree that Dante Culpepper probably could fit that term depending on what you're talking what you're talking about it's, it really just kind of depends on the context so yeah we i know we kind of bounce all around yeah let's we, uh, but yeah but it's a, it's a very good topic. Broad. yeah no question let's get to the last uh, couple more questions i know we kind of went to, we, we're kind of short on time so let's go ahead and uh go through the next couple questions we'll try to go quicker this time but we'll see what's next all right we have another one from Corey esquire underscore phd if you if you could watch two former UCF teams, any sport, face off, which teams would it be and who would win? Now, I'm going to go ahead and just take the assumption that a baseball team can't face a football team. I'm not I'm going to going to go ahead and make that assumption. Fair. Um, make that assumption. So um, so uh, but any, but any sport, you know, can can work for this. Uh, do you want to go ahead and take this one first? Well, the popular answer, I would have guessed, would be the 13 Fiesta Bowl team against the 17 Peach Bowl team, right? That's the two best UCF football teams ever. Uh, Blake Bortles against Mackenzie Milton, Traquan. I don't know. Was that going to be your answer? I don't know if that was going to be your answer or not, but uh, that was definitely something that I was thinking that as uh, something that that I was definitely thinking about. Though I would say that, like, and let's go ahead and get a couple obvious answers out of the way because I think there are definitely a few a few ones that we could do. The 2013 Fiesta, what I think would, would really be interesting, actually, if we had a, I want I want to go ahead and just toss this out there so that because with football, we can kind of talk all day about this. I would propose a four, a four team playoff, an all time playoff. One, the 2013 Fiesta Bowl team. Two, the 2017 National Championship team. Three, uh, I would say I would say maybe the Dylan Gabriel's freshman year, Dylan like a, team, a one with Dylan Gabriel on it because I would be very interested 
to see a Dylan, uh, to see maybe a Dylan Gabriel face off Mackenzie Milton because that's something we couldn't get to see. And so I think that a DG versus Mackenzie Milton led team. Well, maybe this year, maybe we wait. I mean, that maybe the you know maybe, maybe we wait a little, maybe wait a little, maybe, yeah, yeah. But uh, maybe, maybe. But they didn't say the greatest though. They didn't really say the greatest. They could just say any like if you could watch two former like two former UCF teams. But you know, for, I just want to bring up fourteen playoff because it's football. There's a lot of teams that you choose from. Well, be from careful that. if Jeff was then, here, he would be you'd be you'd be you'd be campaigning for a twelve team playoff. So watch out. <laughs> oh, um, and then the but then the fourth slot. I would put with a t- with um, I don't know which uh, which exact season it would be, but a Dante Culpepper led team. All right, so you still so this is what I would do if I, if you put that's a good if I, if you did if you gave me the fourteen playoff, thirteen the seventeen team, uh, the ninety if you're gonna put a call if we got to put a Culpepper team ninety eight the senior year they went nine and two, uh, would have gone to a bowl game under this current system. Heck, they would have probably been a conference contender if they were in a conference back then. Uh, 98, and then the other team would probably be, you have to debate between the 07 team led by Kevin Smith that was the first ever Conference USA Championship team versus a team like 2010 that was Jeff Godfrey that they won CUSA. I would think it's a debate between those two teams if you include the 98. Some people might rather just not include the 98 team, but I think that's your debate is those five teams for four spots. And with respect to the teams like the 1990 team that made it to the playoffs in one double a and I, I don't want to even get into all that but as far as we'll just keep it as far as the fbs level maybe i would say 98 uh 07 2010 2013 2017 i think those are the teams you're 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 at least going into for now now if 2021 team has a great year you get your wish they might get included if they have a great year and win the league get to new year's six you might get your little Dylan Gabriel versus Mackenzie Melton. Who's to say we won't get that in real life anyway, huh? Florida, Florida. Oh! That'd be fun. That I would say that would be that would be oh, really that would crazy now, buzz. Let, now let's go ahead and just quickly get to the second part of that question of who yeah. would win. So, um, so I, I'll go ahead and give your and give your team the ben, give your bracket the give your bracket the go. So it would be 13, 17, 98. And then I would, and then I, and then um, the picking between 2007. If you had, to, if you had to pick one between 2007 and 2000, I think you said 10. Uh, which one would you rather do, Kevin Smith or Jeff Godfrey? See, I think the 10 team was better, but Smith was such a dominant player. I would love to see, to go along with this question, I actually would love to see how Kevin Smith would have fared against some of the UCF teams right now, and and how ball control that would have been fun. And I would probably pick that, even though I, don't, I think 10 is an overall better team. That was a great defense, that 2010 team. But I think to see Kevin Smith on the field, for example, the 07 team against the 98 Culpepper team, that would be kind of fun uh, in one matchup. The, work, there. the workhorse of Kevin Smith versus the the running back uh, stable of McCray, Thompson. That's another one, right? The 17, such a different – like we'll never see another Kevin Smith again where the guy carried the ball like 400 times. It's insane. Um, I think 17 – and 13 are the two best teams. I actually think that would be a fun game because I think 13 would – I'm curious how the line of scrimmage would play because 13 was very much more physical team with guys like Storm Johnson and Stanbeck. And I think their offensive line was better. I think Blake was great. I would love to see that game. I kind of lean towards 17 only because I think Scott Frost would have outcoached the O'Leary staff. But yeah, I would, I would agree. I would, I would agree with 
I think I would agree. I think I would agree with that. Another factor I think is also the defense because we, because we have the Griffin brothers at play in the seven. Yeah, but I wouldn't shortchange the 13 defense. Terrence Plummer is a great linebacker, maybe the best linebacker in program history. Jacoby Glenn was on that secondary as well. Uh, They had talent too there, Uh, but I see what you're saying. I mean, that 17 with the Griffin boys, you know, you know, and then obviously, you know, they, they had talent too up front with Pittman and Gerard and, and company. It would have been a great game. That's the game I would love to see. I think we, if we, if, if they bring back NCAA video game now that we have NIL, I know somebody's going to cre- recreate that game, right? Like it's yeah. got to happen. Yeah. I know 13, I, I know that a lot of viewers will probably be rolling their eyes and be like, you know, 13, 17 is like such an obvious answer, but it's such an obvious answer for a reason because to, you know, the 2013 team, 2013 was a time where, you know, UCF kind of tasted the national spotlight for the first time. Then we, but then we, you know, we kind of, we, you know, we lost it, lost it pretty badly. And uh, then we come back and we, and you, you know, you get the calling matrix national, you know, first place in the calling matrix in 2017 with Mackenzie Milton. And just the idea of seeing these two UCF, UCF quarterback Titans who were not that far off from each other, face off together is definitely something that I would, that I think a lot of people would love to see. And then of course, seeing the running back trio of Storm Johnson and William Stanback going up against a running back, a running back core of uh, Greg McRae. Uh, I believe Taj McGowan was there too. Uh, Adrian, uh, Adrian Killings. Killings yeah. yeah Thompson. And then even then the wide, and even then the wide receivers, Gabe Davis versus Traquan Smith. I mean, that is certainly a major, a major one. And then you have the defense with Terrence Plum, with Terrence Plummer versus the Griffin boys. I mean, even the kickers, uh, if I remember correctly, Matthew Wright and Dylan and I, Matthew Wright and Dylan Barnes, I believe would be the two. If kickers, I, if I, I think on that correctly. team. Yeah. 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 If I recall oh. correctly. Pretty stacked team. Pretty stacked so, team. So yeah, I would. So yeah, I think, so yeah, if we had a, so yeah, if, again, even with the, so even with the 14 playoff, it would be. I, I think that I think Eric and I are both in a bit of an agreement that yeah. 13 and 17 team will go into the championship game, and then after that, it's a bit of a toss up, maybe a lean towards the 17 team. But um, yeah, but that's as far as that's as far as football. We wanted to get that out of the way real quick. Let's go ahead and, and just. Are there any other sports do you think maybe that could work for this? I'll do it for fun. Track and field. Renaya Jones, right? All the buzz. Renaya Jones. What if we paired her up against Octavius Freeman? against Uriel Scott, against uh, some of the great track and field athletes from the past, uh, from UCF, Jackie Coward. You know, that would be kind that's of fun. A, that's an, um, the question said UCF teams, but if we're going to talk individual athletes, then, um, yeah, I think that could, yeah, seeing those I think would certainly be good to see how Renaya Jones would fare against some of the UCF track and field titans from the past. Now it would depend on what event you're talking about though, because correct. Correct. uh, I agree. You know, Renaya Jones is an expert hurdler at the moment, but of course, you know, still be, you know, still being a freshman, I will never stop. I will never stop just being gobsmacked at how good she is as a freshman. So she has a lot of time to, um, you know, improve not only as a hurdler, but also as a sprinter. So, you know, uh, you know, Corey ask us that question again in maybe like three years and, um, you know, and, you know, maybe we might go and go into how, you know, Renaya Jones could probably smoke all smoke all of them or something. Yeah, know. right. Who knows? Um, 
what other questions we got? I know we got to address the football question. Uh, uh, that's um, let me see. I believe that's all the questions we have under the um, un, under. Banner, the, right? All right. So we got. Topic. So let's address the last one here, football wise. Which game are UCF game are you looking forward to the most on the schedule this year? Uh, you have what jumps out to you? All right. Let's go ahead and. Because everybody's good. I mean, obviously you got the Boise game in the opener. Everybody, you got the game at Cincinnati. You got the game at Louisville. Like which one? One game is the one that you're really looking forward to the most. Hmm. Looking at the schedule, I mean, I don't want to go with something too obvious. I think there are certainly several candidates. Of course, you have the Boise State game. You know, seeing these two group of five powerhouses going up against each other is going to be a great game. Excited to see, excited to see that uh, Louisville. I, I I don't know if this is the first time that we have faced Louisville since the two that since the since the 2013 game. I don't if I, I yeah don't that's correct that's right yeah yeah so seeing you know USCF going up against Louisville again the for the first time since the since the Blake Bortles days and the days of the cardiac nights um, was really great uh, would certainly be great. Uh, Cincinnati and Memphis, they're always a, uh, you know, giving us nail, giving us headaches, giving us nail biters over the, over the years, uh, get, getting to go against death. You know, we're going to see another chapter in the lot in the rivalry, but in the rivalry that I'm just going to make up now between Desmond Riddler and Dylan Gabriel, two of the great AAC quarterbacks. So, um, we're going to pick that, one. You're picking, well, we got to pick one. That was the yeah, question. No, I agree. I'm picking those because there's certainly great options. However, options. However, I think I want to go ahead and pick it and pick an understated one, or at least understated in terms of maybe the matchup, because I think the significance of this game, in terms of UC, in terms of UCF football history, is going to be a reason why this game sticks out to me, and that's because and it's going to be this year's war on I four against USF, and the reason I say that is because this is the year where UCF can finally take the series lead for the first time ever. And I think, and I, and I think that, and and I think that I, and I feel like that, you know, people that have, you know, followed this football rival, this, this football series for, you know, since the beginning, USF has just had had dominated it for so long. And now UCF is, is, has caught up. They're tied now. And this season can finally be the season where UCF finally takes the ser- finally takes the series lead, and I would, and I think I would, be- as a UCF student, as someone who's looked at this rivalry and I and you know the, uh, appreciated that it got renewed back in 2013 when we, UCF joined the AAC, and now we have the opportunity to finally do it, to finally do it, and I think that. As far as the, if you want to look at it from a historical perspective, perspective, because I would, you know, obviously those other games are great for their individual purposes, but I want to, you know, pick a game that stands out for a completely different reason. And I so like, I, I appreciate that. I like the fact you're into the history there because some people have wondered about if the young fan base considers South Florida rivalry, considering UCF's dominated that. But I like the answer there. I like the answer there. Um, I'm going to go, I guess, with the obvious, which is Cincinnati. I just love the contrast in that matchup. Uh, I think Luke Fickle is a great coach. I think you can make the argument now that you have the two best head coaches in the conference in that game. That was not the case the last couple of years. Cheap shot. Uh, <laughs> um, and I think Luke and Gus, I think it's fascinating. 
their style of defense. Can Dylan Gabriel get over the hump against that defense? Their style against UCF style. I think it's going to be a physical game. I think that's the marquee game. Could be the first of two meetings this year. They could play again in the American Conference Championship game as well. Uh, I like the Louisville one. I, you know, you bring up a great point. The last time UCF Louisville played was that classic game on that Friday night, ironically, in 2013. Maybe the biggest win in the O'Leary era when you think about it. They were down 28-7 to to Teddy Bridgewater and company. They lose that game. They don't play in the Fiesta Bowl. Uh, but they won that because Louisville would have won the league. Louisville was the favorite. They come from behind. They win that game. They go on to win out uh, you know, and, and win the conference championship and play in the Fiesta Bowl. You don't beat Baylor in the Fiesta Bowl without that win with Louisville. That's a very underrated win. That's a significant win. And it's ironic here. Eight years later, they're going back to Louisville on a Friday night on ESPN. So I, I'm, I'm intrigued by that as well. And obviously, Boise, everybody's, everybody's always excited about the first game. So, um, by well, the way, I, you, know, I, you know, and that's just, you know, Boise-UCF's an intriguing matchup. But, you know, first games is what they are. We don't know how good Boise is. We don't know how good we are, you know, things like that. So I, I don't like when people, yeah, of course you're excited. You're looking forward to the first game. Everybody always looks forward to the first game. Yeah, I know. Yeah, but I think that the, that one one could probably pick that matchup. Like I said before, was because because of the fact that you know UCF and Boise State have been a part of the same conversations with the playoff committee. Like you know, us a lot of UCF fans would point to Boise State in the BCS era being you know having the flashes of brilliance that they've had. Um, they've had. I know I go and watch replays of the Statue of Liberty play all the time, uh, all the time on YouTube, but. Um, you know, but so seeing these two group, these two like, you know, group of five powerhouses going up against each other, just in terms of their, you know, the histories of their programs uh, is certainly a very, just a very intriguing one because, you know, we, people have been talking about UCF and Boise State in the same sentence for a few years now. And now they have, the, and now they're going to have a home and home series together, starting with this game. So. All right. So there's a lot of options we've, Basically, we've done like we've done with every question. We've given you multiple answers. We've probably cheated on this, but that's okay. That's okay. Uh, all right, Bryson, this is a wrap for you. Tell the audience where they can find you and what you got, where you're working on. All right. I am uh, – you can follow me on Twitter at, at It's Bryson Turner. Uh, the B and the T um, and the T and my last name are capitalized. And as far as what I'm going to be doing next – um, barring any breaking news, depending on what's going on with baseball and whatnot, uh, I am currently working uh, working to get ready for Olympics coverage. I am very excited to see what some of our UCF alumni are going to do. Um, for uh, for example, we just got we got word recently that Alain Alain, Alain Reyes is going to be a, a not an alternate, but actually on the main team for Team Brazil. Good. in the in the Olympics in the in the women's Olympic soccer tournament so that starts on July 21st so exactly a week from now so we could be seeing a line Reyes doing a few things there uh Phil Dalhauser of course will be doing the beach volleyball tournament so we'll be following that um and uh just a, several uh, and a couple of other you know UCF Olympians and one Paralympian as well that we'll be following over the course of the next uh, the next month. So very excited to be doing to be doing that. I got Olympic 
uh, you know, getting getting some Olympic fever after Renaya Jones's very valiant attempt to make Team USA. I'm sure we'll probably see her do that and uh, try that again in three years. Probably maybe have some much bigger success there. But for now, we have some great UCF uh, alumni that'll be in Tokyo. That'll be in Tokyo, and I'm excited to see uh, what what the, what they'll do and maybe go into them in depth next week. So that's gonna be fun. All right, Bryson. Thanks again. We're gonna uh, we got more questions. We'll kind of address them in future episodes. I know Roxanne has a question for us about the men's and the women's soccer team and the new players coming in. Uh, we'll address that in a future episodes. But uh, a lot on this show on the plate as well. I was gonna get into the whole. I'm not a hundred percent sure how many of all these games we've talked about. By the way, on the schedule, we're gonna get in the Big Twelve media days was this week. Uh, the American Conference Media Day will be August 4th, and I think one of the big underlining topics are going to be what happens if a football team has some issues with COVID if they're not un, you know, vaccinated and who's vaccinated and who's not. I think this is a storyline that's going to pick up in the next month or so, but we'll touch on that in the future episodes uh, about that. For now, thanks to Andrew Glucott for joining us earlier, as well as for Bryson Turner. I'm Eric Lopez. We hope you've enjoyed this edition of the Black and Gold Banneret Podcast.